Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Book Pod with Corey Perkins the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Oorang Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everybody and welcome to the Book Pod. I'm Corrie Perkin and a few weeks ago in Melbourne I had the privilege of interviewing Jane Harper, the author of The Dry and her most recent wonderful novel Exiles. The event was held in Melbourne in a church hall and we were joined by 120 people, all Jane Harper fans and it was an absolutely fantastic night. I hope you enjoy the recording of that interview with Jane Harper. Hello everybody, it's just so lovely to see you in this wonderful new venue for us. Can you all please give Jane Harper a huge welcome. I I will sit down in a moment, so for those at the back I hope that you can hear us and see us. I don't know how to begin to explain Jane and all she's achieved. But I chose these words very carefully when I wrote this this morning. She is outstandingly talented. She's internationally acclaimed, multi-award winning, and a very beautiful person inside and out. So much so that she's only doing two gigs in Melbourne, one at the Wheeler Centre. They had 250 people there the other night. And the other one, Jane chose us. So... So we're delighted to have you. May I first, of course, acknowledge the traditional custodians of this beautiful part of Melbourne in which we stand and gather tonight, the Boonarong and the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the great Kulin Nation, which spreads all around Port Phillip Bay. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to all First Nations communities. And in the midst of this beautiful Melbourne is our own Jane Harper, homegrown, Almost, with a bit of a, you know, we'll, we'll a nod to England as well. 
But as I said, she's one of Australia's most successful authors and one of our nation's brightest literary stars. For those who wonder where she honed her mighty storytelling skills, it started at a county newspaper in England, followed by the reporters' rooms in, at the Geelong Advertiser and the Melbourne Herald Sun. Jane's first novel, The Dry, what do I say? <laughs> was published in 2016. I remember the day so clearly when I had the bookshop and my sales rep from Pan Macmillan said, we have this hot new talent. And you kind of think, oh yes, well, we've heard a lot about hot new talents. And out came on the computer just this screed after screed of marketing material. Somebody in there, the gang there, knew they had a rock star. And for us booksellers, she became our rock star as well. In fact, I was just saying to Jane during lockdown, the survivors really helped a lot of us get over the line. <laughs> the Dry was published in 2016. It won many awards and was shortlisted for many awards. It won the gold ABIA Book of the Year Award, which I think is probably Australia's eminent industry award. And of course, she won the Gold Dagger Award, which is the British Crime Writers Association Award. The Dry has sold more than a million copies and, and it was picked up and turned into a movie, of course, which many of you have seen, 2021. Eric Banner sends his apologies tonight. He was going to come. But, <laughs> but wasn't that wonderful when we got to see the dry on our big screens and Jane as an extra? <laughs> but that, uh, for me, that movie was just beautifully lit, beautifully acted, and there was our gorgeous Australian bush for all the world to see and no American actors in sight, thank God. <laughs> After that, Force of Nature, which is actually in final production stage, I think, and Jane can tell us about that in a minute, that quickly followed in 2017, once again featuring the enigmatic detective Aaron Fork. The Lost Man arrived in 2018, and as I said, the survivors in 2020. And now, of course, we have Exiles, which arrived last month. Jane, what a ride in six years. Now, to give those of you an idea, there might be some writers in the room and you might know how hard it is to even write a thousand words, but let me tell you that the average fiction writer would probably take somewhere between maybe two or probably three to five years to really get another book out. And in the case of Donna Tash, who we love every 10 years. So this is an incredible achievement and I am in awe of you, Jane Harper. You are my rock star. <laughs> so now I'm going to sit down. We will take questions at the end. If you can't hear, let us know, because Emily will just whiz up the volume a bit. And of course, Chris Redfern from the Avenue Bookstore, who is our dear bookseller friend, who has now come on board to help us with our events and has three fabulous stores, Richmond, Elstonwick, Albert Park. Please make sure that is now your bookshop. My bookshop is his bookshop now, so you have to go there. <laughs> Now, Jane, just talking about your incredible achievements there, I should also mention that Jane is married with two children, and of course, with that comes a busy life of its own. Tell me about your work-life balance. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely introduction, by the way. That was very nice of you. Um, yeah, so I have, to, I have two kids. The, the oldest one is um, six and the youngest one is just about to turn three. So um, the, the, their kind of births sort of coincide pretty neatly with the, you know, the release of the first book. I, the Dry came out in 2016, which is the year my, my first daughter was born. So I've never really had the experience of being, you know, an author without children or having the children without being an author. So they're, they're quite, they're very interlinked for me. 
And, you know, I, I sort of, I, I kind of try like really hard to de demystify the writing process a bit because I feel like there's a lot of people who are, I remember what it's like to be an aspiring author. And I remember it is a, it is a very, it is not a very inspiring place to be, you know, when you, you kind of, you want something and you, you really, it's a, it's a big mountain to climb to write that first book in any book actually. But so I, I kind of, to be honest with you, like if I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it if I didn't have kind of the ability to write full time. You know, this is, there would be no way I could kind of write the books if it was anything like, like I had a part-time job or, you know, I had kind of any other sort of work commitments, like financial commitments I had to do. I can only do it at this level because I can do it entirely and I can... And you have an office away from home, don't I do. you? I do. And it's my, it's my full-time job. My husband doesn't work anymore. He entirely supports, like, it's like our family business. You know, like, the books are kind of what we do. And, and his role in that is to do stuff with the house and with the kids and kind of give me the space I need to write so I can kind of go and do it as much as I need to. And that is the, kind of the only way I can do it. There would be no way I could do it, to be honest, with kids without it being kind of all-encompassing. So Leanne Moriarty says exactly the same thing. And, and in fact, her husband has stepped away from full-time work. Uh, I don't know whether that's permanent or not, but he's, they're certainly in the weeds with young kids as well. So it, it's, it's great that you've got that. I mean, women in the night, well, Jane Austen, I know, could write all day, but a lot of women have not been able to have that time. So hooray, hooray for the men who support you in your writing. I think writing also, there. I'm just looking at Sally Hepworth down the aisle here, who I think is in the same position. I think you're, is that, is that your, yeah. So it's, I, I think it's really, I mean, because, I mean, to write a book, I mean, it is, it's, it's huge. I mean, if you're kind of, if that's, if you're kind of operating at the kind of level where it's your, you know, it's, it's your, your family income, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense that that all the family resources will be poured into that. There's no point treat, there's no point treating it as kind of a, a hobby or a sideline. If, you know, it, because you, you can't, you just can't do it. You can't kind of, you know, spend the time on it. You need to. Well, I love it because, you know, your production level is huge and booksellers love it and your readers, dare I say, are thrilled as well. Just before we get on to talking about Exiles, tell me about the past six years, Jane. You entered a short story competition with The Big Issue. I see, I can't remember what year. Was that about 2014 or something? And I know in other interviews, chats you and I have had, you talked about um, fiction was always sort of bubbling away there. And we'll get back to childhood influences in a moment. But just tell us about the six years. How, when you look back on it, is, are you just exhausted? Yeah, like completely. <laughs> like, like, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think, and I think, um, you know, the, I mean, it is, it is like a really big process writing a book and, you know, having anybody who has, you know, has kids or has had young kids in the past, you know, I mean, it, I mean, that is a really full on thing as well. So, I mean, part of, I guess, the, you know, uh, I suppose the motivation is that I, I always, I always did want to write a novel. Like, I mean, that was kind of my dream. And then finally I, I sort of had this opportunity not just to get the one published, but kind of, you know, to have the opportunity to write other books. So it felt like, you know, I had to do everything I could to kind of grasp that opportunity. You know, it was, it was not going to come around again and I wanted to really make the most of it. So you kind of make those sacrifices, I think, where, you know, I look back on that year, particularly the one where the, the year after the dry came out. And I remember kind of going to like new, new parents group, you know, with my six week old and the other mum's kind of getting to go for coffee and me having to kind of go back home and like work on the book and it just you know it was like that was not a great year to be honest like it was really you know you have to kind of make those sort of sacrifices and I mean it's hard to sort of you know it, I, I wouldn't say I sort of regret them because I mean it's hard to regret that you know those were got kind of get me to this point 
here today. We've got five books and, you know, I don't feel that need to kind of prove myself anymore. But it was um, early on, you do feel, I think, that pressure and to do well, it. Work, working parents do, men and women, don't you all agree? I mean, it's just that constant tussle of, uh, yes, you'd rather be having morning tea with the playgroup, but you've got to go back to the office or the surgery or the writing desk. And it's just the eternal tussle. And uh, sorry, but it doesn't get any easier until they've, <laughs> until they've left school. In fact, they get become more needy, I would suggest, year 11 and 12. Um, so let's, let's, go back to, um, let's go back to the very beginning, Jane, and your, the stories that you remember as a child and what kind of lit, lit that writing flame for you? Yeah, I mean, I was I was lucky, um, you know, I grew up in a house with, you know, parents who were big readers. So we always had kind of, you know, we always had lots of books around. And I think the valuable lesson that they really instilled in me was that reading was entertainment. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a chore and it wasn't homework. It was just something they did for fun. And I think that was really, yeah, I'm really happy that that was kind of the, the message I got. Whereabouts in England were you born? I was in Manchester. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time there, though. We moved around a little bit. And I used to live out here in, Aust in Australia and things. So we, so we did move around a bit. But, I mean, the things that I used to read were not um, – I wasn't, like, a really precocious reader. Like, I wasn't reading above my age level. Like, I read, I read kids' books. I read Enid Blyton. and I read Roald Dahl. When I was a teenager, I read things like Sweet Valley and stuff like that, Babysitter's Club, you know, thing, things like – so I was never reading, like – I was never kind of – uh, you know, reading like higher than like my age group. But then I guess when I sort of transitioned to adult books, it was what was on my parents' bookshelf. And a lot of those were, they were really big fans of like commercial blockbuster kind of crime fiction. So I think that was kind of my first introduction to to that kind of genre. And was it always crime and, and suspense that was on your mind as you were thinking about the stories that you might invent? Not really, because I, I honestly never, when I say I always wanted to be a writer, that was so true, but I never, I never even got to the stage of like thinking about stories. Like I, I literally, when I say I did nothing, I literally did nothing about it. I didn't think about it. I didn't write anything. I didn't kind of, you know, kind of mull over what kind of books I would write. I just kind of hoped that one day I'd wake up and this like book would appear sort of fully written. Um, and you know, there are 350. <laughs> writers out there who are all just cutting their veins now at this point to <laughs> say that. But I, th I think, you know, I mean, the, the thing about, because the thing is also about being, I guess, when you you write a book, I mean, you have to, I, th I think, I, I think though it's, it's important, like what I, I kind of like maybe aspiring authors as well to understand is that it's not about having this amazing idea suddenly occurs to you and then you get to write your book, you know, like you, you get the idea and then suddenly, okay, I'm now inspired. I'm going to write the book. When I decided to write the dry, you know, I, I it was, it was the other way around. I thought I like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write this book and I'm going to let go of the expectation about what might happen. I'm just going to write it and I'm going to write a kind of book I would like to read. And you know, that was a mental shift I needed to make. It doesn't matter if it doesn't get published, at least I'll have done it for myself. And it was at that point I kind of sat down and thought, so what am I going to write about? And this is what the kind of the key I'd, I'd like to say, you know, the, the idea itself is nothing. Like it's the execution that is the important bit. So the idea, I mean, I thought literally the idea for the dry, and I'd, I'd love to give you a kind of more romantic story for this, but it was like something's terrible has happened in this town. It looks like this, but what if it's something else? That was it. That was all it was, you know, and then the, you, can't, you, you kind of, so what is that something else? What was it really? What, you know, what does that look like? So what does this town look like? What's kind of led to this? who's involved, who, you know, who's sort of might know, who, who do I need to tell the story from that point of view? 
And, you know, it's the same with the characters. I mean, with, I get asked a lot about Fork, particularly with him being in this book, but there's no, there's no great kind of lightning strike romantic moment with him either. I mean, he was, your characters first and foremost, they're, they're tools to help you tell the story in the same way as the language choices, is the same way as like the pacing. They're just tools. And for Fork, you know, he, I needed someone who knew the town, but not that well, knew the family, but not that well, had some, you know, kind of, investigative knowledge but not specifically you know that kind of thing I wanted him I didn't want him to come in and kind of be this like really slick city cop who's telling the country guys how to do it he needed to be like a fish out of water I wanted him to be close to the family but not like an ex-girlfriend or something so he became a male character there's all these kind of building blocks and the characters are really two-dimensional for a long time because their their only job is to tell this story and it's only at the kind of point where they are doing that job functionally and well, they start to become more real and you can start to flesh them out and they can mean something. But like they, they're a tool as much as anything else. So that's, I'm sorry, I forgot the original question, but that, that's no, kind of my... I'm just, I'm, my mind is just like, you know, I, I just, as you're talking, I'm wondering at what point as you're thinking all of that through, do you get the courage to actually go, you know, chapter one? At what point do I do, I do yeah, it? Yeah. So, well, with that, well, with, but with that first, with that first book, when you said I was just going to sit down and I was just going to do it. Yeah. So, um, so the, the way I, so I, I, um, I've always planned. I plan a lot more extensively now than I did with the dry. But even with the dry, like I, I planned it out, um, and my process has become again. The other thing is like the hardest book you ever write is like the first one. I mean, you just don't know your own style and you don't know what's going to work for you, and you it's all trial and error. So, you know, it it does it does get easier because I think you, you kind of learn your, you know, you learn your craft and learn what works for you. So for me, I've kind of done it the same way all the time, but it's become a lot more efficient over the course of the books. But I would, so initially I spend, I would spend several months like planning it out, like not actually not even planning out computers, thinking about it, thinking about the, the way that I'm, I'm trying out like ideas, like kind of building on this, this core idea. It looks like this, but it's actually this. And I'm building this kind of you know, the characters and the setting and I'm building these sort of things. And it's a bit like being, a, you know, when you go to the optician and it's like, is it this or this? Which one is better, this or this? And so it's this one, but then, okay, is it this or this? Is it this or this? So, you, so you're constantly trying like different things. And then finally, I kind of, I kind of know when it's the right one because suddenly I can't really imagine anything else. It's like, that's, that's how it should be. And at what point do you, do you work out, particularly with, you have Aaron there, so he's, he's the sort of the key character. But at what point have you decided who who done it? Like immediately, like straight, really? like early. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, it, when I'm when I'm talking about planning as well, like I'm not talking about. Um, I I wouldn't sort of be. I'm not talking about thinking about that opening chapter or the prologue or the kind of the way in. When I'm thinking about the idea for the story, I'm thinking about that end point. So I'm thinking about the that resolution where you find out what has happened, and that's that's the point. So it looks like this, but it's actually this. That's those are the things that I'm looking at. What is the first thing? What is the second thing? And so I know what the second thing is as soon as I know what the first thing is, really. And that's what I'm kind of working out. And then you're kind of building outwards. So everything in the book is sort of funneled towards that end point. And I'm kind of working, not literally backwards, not like chapter 40, 39, 38, but just building it outwards until I get to the point where you, I think, well, what's, where's the kind of earliest interesting point where you can drop the reader in and we can all kind of join this story and kind of move forward together, funneling towards the ending. At the Wheeler Centre, you, talk, you, you made a most interesting point about people who start fretting about the fact that they're not getting anything down 
and whether it's writer's block or it's just lack of courage or whatever it is, and you suggested that they should actually just think of scenes, just write down a whole lot of little scenes, work out a rough order, and then build the, the meat on the bones from there. But as soon as you do the scenes from here to here, I think you said to get to the end, didn't you? Yeah, so that was, that was one thing when, when I was running the dry, actually, and that was kind of a, like, again, it's a kind of early stages of the, the planning Kind of now, now I would do all that before I started to, to, to write. But it, it, when I was doing the dry, I was kind of planning a little bit as I was going along. I was sort of working things out as it went to a degree. But I got to this point where I was like halfway through, I was halfway through the book and I really thought to myself, you know, it's, this is really hard. Like I'm really struggling. And I've, and I felt like, you know, at that point, nobody, nobody expected this book. Like nobody really, nobody was waiting for it. Nobody knew I was writing it. So if it was that hard, I could just stop. And the thing that sort of stopped me from stopping completely was I was kind of roughly halfway through this really, really early, like not very, not great draft. And by halfway, it's like 20,000 words, which is like nothing. But what I did was um, I, had, I had 14 days off work because it was coming up to Christmas, New Year. So I wrote down 14 scenes that I could think of that needed to happen. So they need to meet for coffee. He needs to discover this clue. They need to have like a showdown, you know. And, I, and they were that kind of rough. And I put them in a sort of an order from where I was to the end and then every day I wrote one of those scenes and then kind of on day 14 I'd like finish my book wow. you know and, and, <laughs> and then go great. back again <laughs> it was such a good feeling because it was like this mental load like like I'd actually got there and you could then see the gaps clearly like okay there's, there's gaps in these 14 scenes and that would be the huge and, fun part then filling in the gaps oh I, I don't know fun is a strong <laughs> that's, that's, that's a strong word <laughs> And so, so as you're saying that you're putting all of this together in these 14 scenes in 14 days, do you do what a lot, a lot of old-fashioned writers do, which is have sticky notes and, and whiteboards and everything around your office, or are you completely computer-oriented? Yeah, no, completely. I'm not very visual, so, yeah, it's all computer. It's do all you the use computer. one of those um, particular programs? No, I just use Word. Oh, good on you. Yeah, <laughs> good old-fashioned Word. Um, yeah, no. You must have tree after trees after trees of different things. Not really. Like, so I, I do, um, so when I'm thinking about it, I spend the first, when I'm initially thinking about it, I'm not at the computer because I think it's better to kind of save, you know, we only have a lim like a limited amount of creative energy and I think it's better to kind of save that for when it really counts if you can. So I'll do a lot of the thinking just going around day-to-day -day life and I'll make, I have a, a notes folder on my phone and I'll just, I, I will literally write down every idea I have in this notes folder. And then at the point where it is quite clear it's sort of it's, it's sort of coming together and I feel like okay, I need to organize these then I go to the computer and I would I would have sort of a plan and I'd sort of put those notes in order basically and then the next day I would go and I would kind of keep finessing that plan and every day to save a different version of it so the plan's kind of getting fuller and fuller but you know I always know I can go back if I need to I never do but like you, you, you can and then the same with I come to write it by the time I come to write it I've got this Complete plan, which is probably 40,000 words, and the finished book's only 100,000. So you've got 40,000-word plan. Day one, when I'm going to start writing, open up. We're going to do the prologue today. I open up my notes to the prologue, copy-paste that onto a new Word file, and I've probably got 800 words or something. But then, so it's, it's, I'm never starting with a blank page. Like, it's always something there. So I'll work on that the next day, chapter one. I, mean, I think that's really know. interesting. The blank page, a lot of writers say, is it, it's terrifying. So you're just all those notes you're just putting on. So day one, you can actually start and go, okay, what do I want to keep? What? Do I? It's a very good way of doing it. Tell me about your journalism background, Jane. Did it has it helped you as a storyteller? And if so, 
How has it helped? It definitely did, yeah. I mean, it definitely did at first. And I think, at, you know, um, practical levels, like the, the kind of being able to write a deadline and express yourself clearly and language choices and short, like short, sharp sentences, things like that were really good. The other one that I've, I've sort of re- referenced in over the years but was really helpful was this idea when I was a cadet journalist, you were told you should, you should always expect that people won't finish your article. You know, they'll, they'll read the start and they'll kind of get distracted and they'll turn the page or click away or whatever. So you try and keep them engaged, you try and get them early and keep them engaged as long as possible. And that was kind of the mentality I took to the dry in terms of like chapter endings and how to restart the next chapter and the kind of momentum of the book, I guess. And I think, you know, the, the thing that's probably then, you know, the more you write fiction, the more, I guess, that the knowledge you learn from that fiction writing, I think, helps me more now than my journalism background. But I mean, the thing that has always stayed with me is, and, and is reflected in the books is these, um, for me, the crime and the mystery at the heart of the books is it's not really at the heart. It's kind of the catalyst for what happens next. And the books are about that kind of ripple effect of what happens when, you know, which is something that came across a lot in newspapers. Things you, you meet someone who's had something, you know, really life changing happen, sometimes good, but often not good. And what what is that ripple effect like? And how is their lives? What does their life look like after that? And what will it look like in five years? Or how will they rebuild it? So that's kind of more the and also layers me. of onion too. So the layers of the community that are affected. I feel that very much in all of your books. And I guess what's led them to that point as well, like what what sort of, you know, what kind of twists of fate or decisions or circumstance has kind of led them to this moment and how is that going to impact or change going forward from there as well? You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. I remember when I interviewed you for The Lost Man, uh, about The Lost Man, we talked about, which many of you have probably read, and we're doing no spoiler alerts or anything tonight, so we're hoping that if you haven't read any of Jane's books, you're going to go and buy 20 of them out there. But I love The Lost Man. I love the, the, your outback descriptions. I love all your descriptions of Australia. I think they're, they're really super. You, you capture the sound and the smell as well as the visual of this continent so well. And I remember when we talked, you you said that being not from here and going away and coming back again probably helped you appreciate things and see things that perhaps those of us who have never moved kind of overlook or perhaps take for granted. Yeah, I think I think it did in the first instance. I think for the dry, it, it probably did because you know I do I did remember that I probably moved back to Australia, so I would have been I would have been back here for like five or six years, I guess, at that point. And I, and I had kind of grown up here as a child and then gone away and then come back as an adult. And a lot of the memories or things that I thought were memories were not very accurate. So it was a kind of about recalibrating, you know, memory versus reality. And I think that's, that was kind of maybe focused my attention more than it would have been if I had, hadn't spent those intervening years away. I find now a lot more of the, the kind of the, the scene setting things come, comes from the research trips. So I always do the research trip at a certain point in the writing process, which was, um, is when I've got, I kind of do like, I do a lot of as much kind of like local, like Melbourne based research as I can. So phone, you know, I'm talking about phone calls, like reading books, like, you know, photos, all kinds of stuff, as much information I can here first. And then I'll write kind of the full kind of first draft. And then at that point, that's when I really like to go out and do the on the ground trip, because then I've kind of exposed the gaps to myself, like the things that I don't know and things that I need to ask, like the real specific stuff. And then you always find out things that you didn't even know, you know, to ask um, as well. So that, and, and it's still early enough in the process that I can adjust the, 
adjust the plot if I need to, depending on what I find. So, but it's about, I think, trying to um, kind of walk that line between giving, giving the reader enough detail that they can ideally like sort of recognize it as a place, either somewhere they've been to that region. So it, feel, it feels familiar and recognizable, but not not distinct in that they are fictionalized places, but it feels it feels sort of um, it has that like, like kind of ring of familiarity. Hopefully, it's about sort of cherry picking. I think those details that will kind of make a place what it is, and you know, and make it different from other places. Well, talking about your research trips, or in the interest of um, research, where you've been and what you've done, the Exiles takes place in the South Australian wine country. You were very lucky doing some research there, I think. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I can tell you the exact moments that I, I thought the next I didn't know for sure where it would be set, but when I was doing The Survivors, which was set in Tasmania, and I, I managed to, just by the skin of my teeth, like in hindsight, managed to go out to do this um, research trip in Tasmania at that point in a novel where I needed to. And I, I'd given birth 12 weeks earlier, and I was zipping myself into a borrowed wetsuit to go diving to do research for this element of the novel in a Tasmanian, freezing Tasmanian waters. And I honestly thought at that point, like, never again. Like, this is... <laughs> so, yeah, like, the wine country was a lot nicer. Like, my parents babysat, my husband came, we went out, we had a great time. It was just, it was really fun. Well, it, you capture it really well. And, of course, as I said, Aaron Falk appears again. Hooray, hooray. And he has uh, travelled over, he's taken leave and he's travelled over the border to, uh, because his great mate Greg Raker, who is also a cop, um, has asked Aaron to be godfather to their second child, to their son. And so Aaron is going over for the christening. But this is not the first trip that he has done. What happened to Aaron and everybody a year earlier, Jane? So the book takes place a year um, after the prologue. In the prologue we see this kind of bustling sort of small town South Australian wine country where they've got a food and wine festival and the book opens with a, a, a festival worker finding a baby alone in a pram. So the baby's fine, I just want to get that out of the way really early on, there's no, it's not that kind of book, the baby is fine, she's just, but she's alone and the mother has gone and it, it and the mother is, you know, well known within the community and it just raises questions about what. Like what has happened to her? So we kind of joined the action a year a year on with yeah with Fork reuniting with his friend Reiko from who you may remember from the dry. And I went into this book, so I, I knew going into this book this was going to be this is the third and final one featuring Fork. So you know I spent a long time kind of thinking about exactly what journey that would take for his character. So but I was really happy with kind of the way it came together in the end. Why did you decide this would be the third and final for him? Yeah, I mean I. There's a few reasons. I mean, the I'm really nervous about saying anything here. Just quite, I'm just I'm just going to keep it really straight about what happens. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, I sort of I don't really mind talking about. Well, I mean, I'm happy to sort of yeah, sort of nail my cards to the mast on it being the final one. And I think it's it's it was because I, I, I've known I've known for a long time this was going to be the final one. I've known for like a couple of years as this would be the final novel for him. And I mean, the, the reasons, I mean, it's sort of, um, I get asked sometimes, like, is it because you're tired of writing about him or, you, you know, you want to move on? But it's none of those things, really. I mean, I, I love writing about him. He's been with me since page one of book one. And, you know, it's, it's been, you know, it was so, it's, it's so lovely to kind of, you know, spend time revisiting a character that you know well. But it's because of that. It's, 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 it's because I love him. I love writing about him. I want to, I want to give him the ending that is right for the character. And I think, you know, there's, yeah, you know, fiction endings are as important as beginnings, and 
that's sometimes I think that gets a little bit overlooked, you know, and, and I think it's really important to kind of put aside kind of the commercial or financial incentives to kind of continue past the point where really as an author, I honestly feel it, the character cannot, you know, it does not have the legs to go. So I wanted to give him an ending that was right for him. And that was like a kind of a thoughtful, considered ending that was all, you know, the entire book is kind of built around him. And, you know, because I just felt it was what, you know, what he deserved, really. I'm very glad you didn't go down the Midsummer Murders track. Exactly. Well, that, that's exactly <laughs> or, it. Or, you know, yeah. Angela Lansbury playing Jessica... Fletcher. Fletcher. Yes, immersion. Yeah. Exactly. And I think... And, I mean, as somebody said the other day on a podcast... Did anybody ever wonder about Jessica? Every single cocktail party or christening or Christmas party she went to, somebody ended up dead. <laughs> so Over nine years of episodes. And the thing is with Fork as well, I mean, you make, you make decisions. Because when I started writing The Dry, I mean, I didn't know that book was going to get published. I certainly did not know that, you know, six years later, I was going to be here with like the third book or writing any more books about, or any more books at all. But you, you make decisions around the first one. And like I said, he was a character, he was a yeah, there was building blocks to when it's his character that were necessary for his role in the dry. And I wanted him to have this job that was not a financial investigator. He was, you know, I wanted him to be the opposite of that. So he was, you know, he had his white collar role. He was like desk bound. It was, you know, to be honest, the most sort of kind of boring element of policing I could really think of. The thing is, though, you made that decision in like 2015 sitting at my desk. And now, you know, fast forward six years, you still have to live with that decision. Like I can't suddenly second him onto like the homicide team. So, so you, you kind of have to go with the, the character that you built, you know. He's a, he's a fascinating character. And I wonder whether you felt that the incredibly good looking, rather sexy Eric Banner was the kind of uh, folk that you imagined when you were sitting at that desk that day writing your first chapter. I think he's a little more charismatic than I feel the, uh, the character I had in my mind um, was. But, um, but we'll take it. We'll take it, absolutely. And I mean, the things like about I mean, Eric Banner being cast was like, I mean, did, you know, did I imagine, like when I was writing this book, you know, again, not even though it was going to ever, you know, be printed, let alone kind of made into a film. I mean, did I imagine Eric Banner in a role? I mean, the answer is obviously no, because I didn't imagine anybody in that role. And even when they were kind of, I kind of knew the film was like, you know, you never know for sure, but like, like it's, it was kind of looking more likely this film was going to happen than not. And I remember meeting Robert Connolly, who directed it, and for, for a coffee, and he's saying, I just wanted to run something by you because we've got this look, we've got this actor and he's, he's interested in playing a role. He's read the book. He's really keen. We think he'd be great. And I was like, honestly waiting for like a name I'd never heard, you know, I mean, I was waiting for like the, you know, the words like up and coming or, you know, like he's, he's kind of done like some really great guesswork in the soaps or something. Um, he's going to be big, you know, that kind of thing. And then when, so when I said Eric Banner, I, I, like, I couldn't believe it, you know, I couldn't believe it was someone yeah, of his caliber. And I just think, you know, for me, the test was always kind of how the readers responded, you know, and I, and I mean, I, I, like, I feel he was a really inspired choice because he's, he's got that kind of warmth about him. He's very easy to kind of want to kind of warm to, want to follow. He's so beloved, you know, and the readers absolutely loved him. I mean, I think the, the response was so overwhelmingly positive, which is, I mean, what more can you ask for, really? So how's the second, the second film going? Have you been to the, where are they shooting so they, they, they finished filming it and they, they filmed it here in Victoria, which is great. So it was in the Yarra Valley and also the Otways. So they, I went out for one day when they were filming a kind of a lodge scene. 
you know, it, it looks like how's it going? It looked good. I don't know. It looked fine. <laughs> it's hard to tell because it's so it's so detached. You know, you see this kind of tiny snippet. I mean, they all seemed happy, and yeah, the, the setting looks. It's weird, isn't it? Because the coffee and, vans over here, and yeah, you know, and, then, and yeah, they're, yeah. they're sort of shooting the same thing every, you know, yeah. all day. Um, but does that come out next year or the year after? Force of nature. Um, they haven't set a date, as far as that I've been told. Anyway, I think they were waiting till the roadshow, wait and see how how the editing process went, and then. I guess it's a bit, I think it's a bit like publishing as you, you know, like you, they don't just put a book out when it's finished, you know, they'll, they'll pick a slot where they think the book will perform well. So the, I think it's the same with films. They'll, they'll pick the best available slot, you know, that they feel the, the film will do well. So, yeah, but I mean, I think it's kind of just get, I get the sense that they would like to build on a momentum of the drive. So I, I feel like sooner rather than later mm. would be on the cards. The, so. This, um, the Exiles is very cinematic. It's a place that you call Marilee Valley. And as you said, there's the annual food and wine festival and I can really feel the town folk and I can see the Ferris wheel and I can see the gorge and the reservoir and all of the things that you talk about. It feels very cinematic and I wondered how difficult or otherwise or not at all it is to write with perhaps a movie producer or director on your shoulder kind of making you go that extra bit that might get it into uh, onto the big screen. Um, Is it difficult to, uh, write, to go back to writing normally? So, like, I, it, it totally could be. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's part of me, like, when I, when I first, when I was writing, started writing this one, so the dry would have come out. Yeah, the dry had come out. And I was kind of, I, I knew they were kind of, there was, they were making noises about possibly making force of nature. So there was this kind of, thing where you think well if they're going to make two would they make three like is that I mean you know nothing certain it's all commercially driven but I mean look you know if, if they just stopped at one but you think okay no but well look at Anne Cleves with Vera that's right and I mean I, th I think I think it was a reasonable it was, it was reasonable to kind of think you know look if they're making two they might make third so then I'm sitting there and and, and sort of for five minutes you're sort of sitting there thinking oh god like so am I, am I writing a book or am I trying to write a story that will be good enough for Eric Banner to play this play one day. And that is a really paralyzing place to be. Like that is, you know, I mean, you know, at that point you just sit at the screen, you think, well, I don't know, I can't, I can't, like, I don't know how to even do this. So I'm, I'm like, I'm quite good at compartmentalizing things. And the fact is that like, I didn't get into this because I wanted to see, tell stories that got made into films. Like, I mean, that's, it's, People sometimes don't, I think, believe me actually with that. I think it's sort of seen as the ultimate dream. But for me, it never was. It was always, I, I wanted to write books because I, I love books and I wanted to write a book, you know. So the film is kind of just sort of this other, it's not, you know, it's, it's great and it's really nice, but it's kind of this other thing a little bit. And, and so, but with the books, I can't control anything with the films, but with the books, I can control everything. You know, this, I, it, it gets to be exactly what I it's want it to be. It's your world. It's your That's world. right. And what yeah. I want to happen happens and what I, the tone I choose will be the tone and the, you know, so it's, so I kind of, once I'm back into that headspace where it's like, you know, this is my book and this book will be exactly what I want it to be. And I'm just going to write it again for myself to, to kind of be my thing that suddenly became easy again, you know, yeah. not easy, but easier. Yeah. Although, and maybe, maybe it will have a life beyond the books, actually, and that's what Anne Cleves found with Brenda Bean. They, they would just talk about what, what, who was Vera and what was her backstory, and, and there were other scriptwriters then writing the script to keep the television series yeah. bouncing along. I can't see myself, honestly, Sitting ever, down with Eric ever supporting no. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, legally, like, you sign over the... Yeah. 
the rights and stuff. But I mean, in terms of kind of my feeling about that, like, I, I mean, it sounds like she's, I think she's very comfortable with that. To, to be honest, like my contracts don't, would not allow that anymore. Yeah. In terms of like, kind of, there's only so much you can do. It's like, it's like selling a house, selling your, 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 your book rights. And I have a quite complicated relationship with it a little bit because it's like, it's like selling your childhood home, you know? And you can be really careful about who you sell it to and you can you know, sound them out and you can check and you know, they seem like a really great family with a kids and dog and they're going to love it. And you can sell it to them and you do your due diligence. And then, you know, if you're lucky, you get someone like Eric and Robert Connolly who, you know, you know, water the garden and put in beautiful double glazing and, you know, it's lovely. And you drive by and you're like, oh, wow, isn't, isn't that beautiful? But then, you know, you could equally drive by and it's like suddenly a block of, a block of flats and there's nothing you can do about it because you don't own it anymore. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing through life. Jane, we'll, we'll, get, we'll take some questions in a minute and I just want to tell everybody, please, don't give anything away on any of the novels. That would be great. I want to talk about your secondary characters in this book and this is apart from landscape and apart from great plot and apart from the fact that you always set it up where we've got five or six or even more potential murder, murderers in our midst, and they're all really strong and you're trying to work it out as the reader from the very beginning. But the, this cast of secondary characters, you always have really rich, wonderful characters. I mean, Reiko and his wife, Rita, are super. I adore them. I want to go and live in their little guest hut on their winery too. But Kim Gillespie is the interesting character for me. So she's the, young, the, young, the mother of the baby who has disappeared on this particular night. And it, it's a haunting presence because everybody throughout the book is talking about her, what happened, and trying to bring her back to life a year later, trying to recreate what happened to her by telling Falk the kind of person that she was. And she's so real to me, and I think that's a real, I think that's a real tribute to you because there's a non-character who becomes such a character in the book. It's pretty amazing. Once you've got the building block of, of what the plot is and Falk, how do you then fit in this amazing sort of subset of characters? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the same process as like all the other stuff, really. Like you start, you start small. And I think, again, if you're kind of an aspiring author, I think it's, it's really important to kind of give yourself a chance to do things one at a time because sometimes it can feel like you have to do everything all at once. You know, all your characters need to be full and rich and developed. You know, and it, it just can't happen. Like you can't, you can't sort of tackle everything in one go. So, um, with the secondary characters, they're, they're quite interesting because there's, there's some, there's sort of almost like secondary and then third characters. Like, so some people will have kind of key roles and then other people will, you know, you, you kind of know that they're there again to kind of advance the plot for certain reasons and things. And, um, and for a long time for me, they are very two dimensional. They are, they are quite, you know, again, functional kind of doing the job and some of they actually a lot of them don't even have names for a long time. They're literally called like Reiko's brother, you know, or something. It's like, it, they, they're just, they're, they're very kind of, they're very sort of functional. And the key really is to kind of, for me, is to get, is to get the plots and the, the kind of the, get them sort of set in stone in terms of like what they need to do. And by that, it's also things like making sure they have enough like page time. You know, you need to see them enough. You can't just have them in chapter three and then chapter 30. You have to kind of, keep them interacting. And that's a bit of a decision about the secondary characters as well. Like who is going to naturally be able to interact ideally with the main character. You don't want him running into them by coincidence, 
you know, like at a coffee shop, to, you know, maybe you can get away with that once. You really need those reasons for them to interact. So you're thinking who who is going to be able to interact with this main character in a plausible way multiple times over the course of the book. So for a long time, they're kind of doing their job. And for me, in the early drafts, it's quite obvious as well who are like the important secondary characters and who are kind of the, the second tier ones, third tier ones, I guess. But the, the key is that by the end of the book, by the time you kind of submit your manuscripts or whatever, you have to, that has to be invisible to the reader and you have to then build them all up so that, that the reader can't tell. Like they all feel real and they all feel like they, they naturally should be there and any, any one of them could fulfill any role in this book. And that is just a bit of a laid process. It's about going through and the more scenes you have with them, the more you get to know them a bit, their way of reacting to things, how they would speak, what their kind of background would be. It starts to sort of slowly fill in. And sometimes you just have to go back and think, I don't know enough about this character's backstory. What is their backstory going to be? And you're trying to elevate into a level where it does feel like this sort of seamless cast. Do your characters talk to you at night? Um, <laughs> so like, like some, not, not in a kind of literal, like, you know... You'd be amazed how many so, writers, yeah. uh, Sally probably could say that too, but how many writers will say to you, oh, they don't shut up, they just like, I do, I think about them a lot. For me, it's always like, so it's not like I'm watching them on screen or anything. It's not like I'm kind of watching this scene play out. It's more like I'm kind of behind behind their eyes because a lot of the things where I'm kind of trying to write them is thinking, well, this has happened, this is happening in front of them, what, what are they going to say? What's their reaction? It's what are they thinking and feeling in this moment? So that's kind of where I am with them. So sometimes, yeah, if I'm not quite sure what that reaction would be. Sometimes that will, you just need to kind of let it settle for a while and that will kind of come later. Or you kind of move on and it, the, and then you get to know them a bit better and then you go back and the reaction becomes clearer. And you said, you said earlier from the beginning you kind of know who done it, but does it ever, has it ever changed? Have you actually discovered a character and as you've gone further on you've gone... No, no it, ne- it, never, it never has. And I don't honestly think it, would ever, it ever would for me because I think the, the, it's, it's, it's got to be kind of laid into a degree where, I mean, the whole book is written towards this ending. So everything is, you know, everything is laid in. I don't really know how authors do it where they, they discover it at the end. I, I don't think, I'm not sure, how, I, I can only think then you have to go back and plant the clues as you you have to go back and plant the clues. It's a lot easier if you know and you can plant them as you go. Maybe writing, and maybe writing crime is really different too. You have to yeah. have that really disciplined structure from the very beginning because you, you have to plant clues. Because I, I think there should be a reasonable chance that people can kind of work it out. Like I feel by the end of the books, you, you, all, all of my books, I think you should be able to kind of go back and think, oh, okay, yeah, that was, yeah, I saw that. That was there. Okay, I can see why that was that now. And, and the, the key is, you know, as the author is, I guess, to kind of think, you know, you, you, you can put it right there for people, but if you, if you surround it with enough other things and it's sort of presented in a certain way, it can be right there, but they will, they will be looking at the periphery or they will be thinking about that and they will have a different headspace from, you have to kind of really rely on the logic of it because it doesn't really work on me as the author, you know, and I think it's like, you know, you see A, you will think B. Yeah, yep, guilty. <laughs> that was me. Any questions for Jane from anybody? Don't be shy at all. We're just recording an episode of the book pod, so I don't want you to be shy. Question was about the ending for Fork. How did Jane come to that? Yeah, so um, going into the book knowing it was going to be the final one for him, I mean, I spent like a long, I mean, I spent like a lot of years kind of thinking about how, what this book was going to look like. And, you know, I tried, I tried like a few different ideas on, you know, 
I actually ended up speaking to this woman who got in touch with me after she saw, she saw me at um, a festival and she did media relations for the AFP for the financial division, the exact division that he would work for. She was like, give me a call. I'll talk to you about wow. all our stuff. So I was like, great. This is going to be so much like, this is going to give me like so much material. This lovely woman, I spoke to her for ages, came away with literally nothing. <laughs> like, like not her fault. But th- my God, he was, this division is so boring. Like the, um, you know, it was like, like, it was like, there was nothing. The average case takes like seven years to resolve. They were saying things like sometimes, like I got a bit excited when they were talking about like seizure of property. And I was like, so they go out there and like, you know, seize these like, you know, these kind of tax fraud houses. And they're like, no, no, it's largely done through the lawyers, you know, and things like that. It's like, oh my God. Like there was just like, like nothing. So I kind of knew I wanted to kind of, this book was going to be, it wasn't going to be work focused. It was going to be more personal and it was going to be about him. And it was, it was about, you know, it, it was it was going to be it was going to be kind of the ending that was going to be yeah for him and and I didn't know for a long time what that ending would look like I I wasn't quite sure but I was sort of trying on a few different things and I guess yeah without telling you what it is but like I was I was really I felt in the end I felt this was exactly how I wanted to go with it so that was just about how do I pick the characters' names and I'll tell you what this is like this is probably one of my least favorite parts of the whole writing process. I, I really struggle with it, to be honest, because I think as I leave them unnamed for so long, I, I do try at some uh, kind of, there's a point at which I, I, you know, I feel like I have to, but if I leave it too late, they never feel natural. So there's a point where I feel like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to step aside and I'm going to, I'm going to name these people. They're going to get names today. And, you know, and I, it's, it's, it's a question of like, I trawl through because it's such a minefield because you have to do things like, you know, you're trying to work out names that would be suitable for those characters within a town. But in reality, four of them would be called Dave, you know. So, you, so you're trying to think, okay, variations, what names have I used before? And then you've got to do the That's last names. That's actually so interesting that you say that because you can be at a book club and five girls are called Anna or Annie or Anne. And That's you right. Don't, and authors don't do that. No, that's just confusing. Yes, <laughs> and, and even names that are too close, like if you have names that are like you know Shane and Sean or something, it's too it's too close. Just you know when the reader's reading fast and things. So so I would draw like I do. I I, I mean I go to a few sources where. So I never, I never use real people's names, no, but I, I would mix and match. So I do, I, I check out the AFL list a lot for the years <laughs> to go for people who were born in the year. You know what I mean? To play like who would be this, the right age for what the characters are. Women's netball teams as well I go to a bit. Sometimes... The year's most popular names. Yeah, it's been, you, you burn through them though fast. I mean, there's only, there's only you know, there's, a, there's only a few that recur a lot, you know. You can have um, Corey if you like. It's fine. Yeah, that's it's right. Okay. That's okay. Just um, make, make, make her a nice person. That's you? right. <laughs> and, that's it. And, and as well, you sort of find names, that, I don't know, you, you kind of want them to... I don't, yeah, look, it takes it takes ages, and sometimes they change as well. Like sometimes I will have a character, and I'll be calling him something, and and I'll be like, it's not sitting right. I have to change it. But again, I try not to do too late because then it feels false. Usually, when I find the right name, it does then click. Though you think actually, yeah, okay, that's that's right. But sometimes it takes a few tries. So yeah, so that's kind of how long, long and long and painful. <laughs> One more question, anybody? Yeah. So the question's about the edit, the editor and the editing process with the books. Um, so it kind of it probably varies, I think, for different authors. So for me, I have an Australian editor, a US editor, and a UK editor, and they are all allowed equal say. Um, so so the thing is, I, I, I try I try not to make the same mistakes twice. So once they've kind of told me something in a book, the benefit of that is then I can ideally apply that to the next book. So each time, I feel the quality of the advice gets 
higher and better because we're able to, you know, I'm not making the same kind of silly beginner mistakes like, you know, word repetition or changing the point of view midway through the scene or, you, you know, the the sort of the structure's a lot sounder. The, I've, Do the internationals, international editors want you to take some of the Aussie out of it? They don't, no. not No, actually. I think the, the closest it comes is at, at the point where you, it goes through this like kind of the big structural edit, which is where the three editors get their say and they kind of, they kind of give you their opinion on it, but they come coming as a first reader. And what I, my sort of attitude to it is like, if they, you know, it doesn't really matter what I've said. If 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 what they've read is different, then it's worth, you know, considering fixing it because the intention doesn't matter. It's the perception that's the important thing. So, so I'm pretty open to kind of what they say. And sometimes you try things and it doesn't work, or sometimes you've already considered something, you've made a decision for a different reason. But then it's, it's really when it then go, you do all that big sort of structural edit and then it goes through to kind of the finer, kind of more copy edits. And that's kind of the points at which then the Americans start to have to kind of change things because they, they have, I get sort of this version back from like a special copy editor there who says things like, you know, you know, I'm so sorry, I don't know what this word means, you know. And, um, or, I mean, if they're, if they're actually, if they're, if they're not great, that's what they say. They say, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know what the Royal Fine Doctor Service is. And you say, well, that's what Google's for. But, you know, it's, it's, but if they're good, they will say, they will look up that word, they'll put it into their Google, they will pull up the picture and they will be like, we don't call it this, we would call it this. Are you happy to change? So, so that's kind of, but that, that's the most they do. They're actually very, they're actually very supportive about keeping all the kind of, the dialogue and everything as is really. I'm so pleased to hear that and, and I'm so pleased that, that you've made an Australian film about an Australian story with Australians and a second one's coming and hopefully a third one will be Exiles. So this is the book. If you haven't read it yet, uh, you, you must. It's a great gift, I think. As I said on the podcast this morning with Caro, it'll be in a lot of Christmas stockings, I feel, this year. And thank you to all of you coming tonight out to see us. But, of course, the big thanks is to Jane Harper. Thank you very much. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.